0: The following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Maybe you children have found yourselves in a situation where there was somebody in your home, and it was a very important visit uh, with your parents. Maybe it was a lawyer, maybe it was uh, an insurance salesman, or whatever, but it was a very serious conversation. And you are over, either in the corner of the next room, and you are misbehaving. And suddenly, your parents break off this very important interview that they're having, and they turn their attention to you in order to correct you. Now, that's embarrassing, isn't it? I know of a preacher one time whose wife could not be at the service, so he had all of his children up on the front row of the church, and they were misbehaving in church. You know what he did? He stopped his sermon, and he corrected his children. Now they were really embarrassed, but you know what? You eventually learn as children when your parents, in the midst of something very important, even preaching a sermon, stop in order to correct you, what are they showing? They're showing they love you. They care about you enough that their attention is always placed upon you. Now, you know that's a good thing. But what we see here about Job, he did not at this point in his experience recognize that this Attention of God in his life, manifested in his afflictions, was a good thing whatsoever. And this, At the end of this speech of Job, concluding chapters 6 and 7, this is what Job is pushing back against. Now, you remember in the first half of the chapter, we looked at last week and read that again, that Job has come to a place of hopelessness. Um, The military person, the slave, the hired servant uh, will have time for rest and will have some reward for their labor. But Job says all he has is months of vanity. All he has is sleepless nights with no rest and no reward at the end of the day. And so he, he is pleading again for death. He's using this despair as a reason why he longs to die. But he's dictating to God. He said, This is enough. Bring an end to my life right now. Rather than say, Lord, if it is your will, bring an end to my life. Now, in this at the end of the section that we looked at last week, he thinks about the pressure of God in verse 16. I waste away, I'll not live forever. Leave me alone, my days are but a breath. Thinking there of the of the very shortness of life, no more than a breath on a on a winter's morning, he's really asking God to leave, leave him away. The word translated waste is loathe. He, he loathed his life, It's come into an end, leave me alone. Now he, in our text, focuses more precisely on what I would call the scrutiny of God. He's, he's two sets of questions where he is uh, uh, questioning the scrutiny of God. The first set of questions we find in uh, verses 17 to 19, and then the second set in 20 and 21. And from these questions, the positive truth remember, all scripture is given for our instruction. This is here for our edification. So, the positive principle, and I'm going to derive from Job's series of questions, is that our God is a personal, gracious God who is involved in our lives for our sanctification and to exalt himself. Our God is a personal, gracious God who involves himself in our lives in order to sanctify us and exalt himself. We'll consider these two things. God is personally involved in our lives, and God is graciously involved in our lives. Well, then, verses uh, 17 through 19... God is personally involved in our lives, and Job, with the first set of questions here in 17 and 18, lays out a general question, and then in verse 19, he applies it to himself. Now, it's a very important question that Job asks in 17 and 18. What is man that you magnify him, that you're concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Uh, This question is repeated in the Bible. It's repeated in Psalm 8. Uh, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Or in Psalm 144, 3 through 5, the psalmist repeats the question. As he blesses God, who is his rock and deliverer, O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you think of him, man like a mere breath, You see these parallels with Job's own confession. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains that they may smoke. Now, in Psalm 8, the psalmist is reveling in this great God who has considered him. And in Psalm 144, it becomes the basis, this attention that God pays to him is is the basis of his hope for deliverance. But Job asked the question uh, in a negative way. Uh, So as he asked the question, implied in verse 17 is the transcendent greatness of God and the the finite frailty of man. This word again, man, is the word that describes man and his frailty and and his mortality. Uh, No more than, than a worm. Uh, no more than the dust of the earth. What is he, Lord, that you would magnify him and be concerned about him? But now notice the focus of this magnification and concern the scrutiny that God brings to bear on man, that you examine him every morning. This is an idiom for the entirety of the day. And try him every moment. So Job is basically saying, Lord, aren't you too important than to devote all this attention to me? Don't you have really better things to do, upholding the universe and govern your angels and advancing your cause, maybe vindicating me from from my enemies? But, uh, Lord, you you are great. The word we use, kids, for this is he's transcendent, which means he is over everything. He is one of a kind. He alone is God. Says you are great, you are transcendent. Why do you focus on me? Why am I? Uh, why do you have your spotlight, Lord, shining on, uh, well, on on man? Period. Why do you bother yourself, particularly with affliction? You see, that's what Job is dealing with: is affliction and this magnification of God now is coming in his is bringing affliction into the lives of his people. Well, he applies it to himself now, as I already started doing, in verse 19. Will you never turn your gaze away from me? You see, he just he feels the, in this affliction, he feels the penetrating look of the eye of God. Will you not let me alone until I swallow my spittle? And it's, it's an idiom that we would say that, I can't even catch my breath, Lord. You're not giving me any rest whatsoever. This personal involvement in Job's life through these afflictions, that's his complaint with his question. But but notice what Job is presupposing here two things, or two things that presuppose one thing. He's presupposing that God is a personal God because he's praying. Right? He's not talking about God. He's talking to God. If he's talking to God, even though he believes that God is transcendent and far off, he knows that God's hearing him. And then second, he is, he is presupposing that God's a personal God because he recognizes that God is intimately involved in his life through these trials and afflictions which he is suffering. And that's a glorious truth for us. Now, we know that God's personal involvement in our lives is for our good. We see that, for example, in Psalm 8, as I've read that. Notice again that the, the um, great distance, so to speak, between God and us, because the psalmist begins by referring to God in His transcendent, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the will cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Well, this psalm in the first place answers that, well, he is made in the image of God. He is superior to everything else in this created realm under the angels. And it's because of that that God cares about him and is involved in his life. And then God has great purposes for man. As he's shaping him, renewing him in the image of God, he's placed everything under man, that man then might rule in the place of God. And of course, as we saw in Psalm 144, there the intense gaze of God is a comfort to us that God is going to be our deliverer. He's never too far removed. He is mindful, and he's mindful of you. He's mindful of everything that takes place in your life. Every trial, every disappointment, every pain, every joy and pleasure, he's mindful of, and he is the one who's directing these things, and you must revel in the reality that He has turned His eye upon you. And He will never turn it away. Hey, can you begin to imagine what it would be like if God ceased to gaze upon us? We would cease to be. So Paul says in Acts 17, that in Him we live and move and what? Have our being. He turned His attention away and we would be nothing. But but more importantly, this attention shows us that he's the covenant God and that he's intimately involved in your life. He's saying to you repeatedly, as we'll see in the Lord's Supper in two weeks, but repeatedly, I am your God. You are my child. I am your God. You are my son. I am your God. You are my daughter. So that in covenant, he has come into this very personal relationship with us. At this point, Job could not... Appreciate this. Remember, he didn't know what was going on. He'll learn a bit by the end of the book. We learn a lot through the book and through the rest of Scripture. And so this is also God's way of revealing to us that he is a personal God. And we don't want to push back against that. Yes, even in our trials, just as your children do not enjoy spankings, we don't enjoy God's afflictions. But what they testify to us is God's personal love, his loving kindness bestowed upon us, bestowed upon you. Revel in that reality. So God is personally involved in your life. But second, God is graciously involved in your life, and that is taught us in the last two verses. We have here a confession, a query and a plea." The confession is the first three words in the New American Standard, have I sinned, and the ESV, the New American Standard, trans- translate this as a question. But here, the King James, the authorized version, is much closer to the Hebrew. It's actually, I have sinned. Here's Job's confession. Now, we've already, in a sense, seen it as he was regularly making sacrifice for his children, recognizing that he and they lived by the grace of God, needed to confess their sins, needed to have their sins pardoned. And Job never, ever in this book claims to be sinless. He recognizes that he sinned. But on the other hand, his conscience bears witness to what God has said about him. And that is that he's blameless, upright, a God-fearer, turning away from evil. Now here is the basis of the query. Yes, Job must honor his conscience. He cannot assent to what his friends are saying, that he is a gross hypocrite. He knows he's not. He knows he sins, but he confesses his sins. He knows that he's not perfect, but he's not a hypocrite. God has declared his conscience bears witness of his uprightness in the presence of God. But you see, his problem is, as I've already noted in previous sermons, he too, to some degree, is bought into this theology of the other three. And that is, how can a righteous man suffer to the degree that Job is suffering? That's it's foreign. It's foreign in in the unfolding, even as we'll see next week, of of their tradition. that has been passed on from the fathers. And so, even as he owns sin, you'll notice that his query then is, What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target, so that I am a burden to myself? That last phrase, burden to myself, is a, the better translation than you have in some Bibles, which say a burden to God. No. Um, he is feeling this extent of the burden. But the question is what have I done? What have I done to warrant this scrutiny from the watcher of men, who now is flinging arrows against him as fast as an elf and Lord of the Rings? One arrow. After another, he has become God's target. The arrows of God are being flung at him so that he has a great burden to himself. And he does not understand it. This is what he's praying for. Light. Because then we see his plea in verse 21. Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Now you see... He knows that God's personal, but you see, he also knows that God's gracious. This confession assumes that Job knew that God would pardon sin. So he's asking God, "What? why don't you pardon my sin? And basically before it's too late. Now up to this point, he's been wanting to die. But suddenly, as he thinks about the fact of dying perhaps unpardoned, That turns into an argument in the last half of 21, Now I will lie down in the dust, and you will seek me, but I will not be. In other words, if I die, it's too late to pardon my sins. You boys and girls need to understand this, as I've said to you often. You think you've got forever, and you'll make terms with Christ someday, But if you die and your sins are not pardoned, you understand what that means? It means you go to hell. And if if Job, as one person in this life, is is feeling the arrows of God uh, slung at him one after another, uh, can you imagine what it's going to be like in hell? With the awfulness of the terror of God shooting arrows into your heart, aggravating a conscience that is testifying against you, even of this sermon that you heard today. Every other sermon that you've heard about the need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be unrelenting. But we see here that our God is a God of pardon. And that's the great truth that uh, we learn. And... Job understood with the psalmist, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But he also understood to some degree that God was a pardoning God. He says, Lord, if I've done these things to alienate me from you, why don't you pardon me? Take away my sin. Transgression has to do with the violation of God's law, iniquity, the guilt, and defilement of sin. Why not take it away? Well, that's a very important lesson for us, that God does forgive sin. And we know from beginning to end of the Bible that God's willing to forgive sinners, and he forgives us every day as we come to him and confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of unrighteousness. But Job makes two mistakes in this confession. In the first place, he fails to see the enormity of sin. Now, I'm not contradicting myself. He recognizes in his conscience he's not been a gross hypocrite. So the question is, why am I suffering? But you see, what he's saying there is, uh, my sin does not deserve what's happening. And that is a low premium on sin. See, what we have to realize is that one sin is is heinous in the sight of God. It It just doesn't penetrate. So again, boys and girls, one lie. One burst of anger against a brother or a sister or a parent, that is all that God needs justly to punish you in hell forever. We just don't understand this beautiful holiness of God. It, it would be like there's this beautiful white garment and you, and you spill one little piece of ketchup on it and it's marred it. That's not any comparison to what our sin does to this impeccable, glorious character of God. And we've got to grow in our understanding of how awful sin is. Nothing happened to Job if God simply wanted to exact retribution. Nothing happened to Job that would not be warranted by his sin. Do you understand that? Nothing has happened to you that has not been warranted by sin. But then that's Job's second mistake. And he thinks that, well, I'm suffering because of these sins. Now it's true, I'm going to come to this in just a minute, that God will afflict us for our sins. But here was the the narrow vision of Job now that the book is going to correct. The more narrow vision of his friends is that all affliction is direct punishment against Specific sin are sins. That can be true. The Bible's uh, very clear about that. I, most of us have experienced it mercifully, usually in small things. Uh, when we lived in Mississippi, we got a new car, and I immediately backed into an iron pole at the post office and dented my new car. I also immediately realized that I made an idol out of my new car and God quickly corrected me at that point. Now, sometimes it's not so easy and amusing as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11, and some are dead because they abused the Lord's Supper, or on a, gross bed, or a bed of illness because of their hypocrisy. But sin afflictions come for other reasons. They come for sin in general. So that... Uh, Now, what our parents do not do is simply give us a spanking every day because we have a sinful nature. That, on a parent's part, would not be wise. But God does afflict us because he's designed the afflictions to cleanse us, to root the sin out of our lives. Sometimes he does it to exalt himself in us, which is what's happening in Job. Job is not being punished because of sin. Job is God's champion. Job has been lifted up by God uh, to be at a champion in time and above all to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, when he, he learned the full reality of what he was doing, he would also have been able to rejoice in his sufferings. So he needed to be corrected and understand that the scope of affliction was much broader than simply the punishment for sin. So I've shown you that God personally and graciously involves himself in our lives to chasten us and to exalt himself in us. Now, let's think a bit more then how we should respond to what God is doing in our lives and to do so humbly. Let's come back to this matter of affliction. Job does begin in the right place. It's often the place that you and I skip over, and that is, is there a cause in my life that would be the basis of what God is doing in my life? This is what's behind James chapter 5, when James says, if any of you is sick, let him call for the elders to call, come and anoint him with oil and pray. If he has sin, it will be forgiven him. Now pay attention to this. It's not all will be healed as he goes on to talk about healing, this is an illness that's because of sin. If it is an illness because of sin, and he confesses his sin, he will be healed. And to call for the elders is basically saying, I know I need to go through this time of self-examination and see if there is something in my life that is causing God to lovingly correct me. This is a question you should ask with your afflictions. It's a question that we as pastors and elders should ask, and sometimes we're a bit cowardly. But we're not doing you a favor if we don't first ask you, have you examined yourself to know, is there some particular thing in your life that God is dealing with through this affliction? As I said, if there is, it'll be quite clear. It's not going to be a great mystery. You repent of that and... You'll profit from it. But you must remember that there are other reasons that God afflicts you. He afflicts you just generally to chasten you, to to shape you, to to conform you in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He afflicts you to honor himself in you, to bring great praise in the body of Christ as, as we are alongside you and we see you suffering and we see how God has sustained you. And we're praising God for that work. Uh, the world looks at you and they see you in your trials and they marvel because they know they could not do what you're doing. And so learn to accept all affliction coming from the personal loving God. And how can that be? We turn back one more time to the question. Oh, how what is a man that you magnify him? And now we come to Hebrews 2 where the question now is applied to our Savior. So in verse 5, He did not subject angels to the world to come concerning which he, we are speaking, but one is testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet here he applies this to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that God is mindful of us as His image bearers so much that He gave us His Son, who humbled Himself, taking our nature to Himself, taking our flesh and blood to Himself, that He might be the God-man, that He might be the deliverer. And here you see the greatest display. God's personal involvement and grace in your life. It is in your savior. And because he is your savior, you have the guarantee that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let us pray.